Who were the pirates of the early modern period, and what enabled them to rise to power? This week on Footnoting History, we'll look at what made piracy attractive, what made its unusual degree of equality possible, and how pirate legends have endured and been used. Hello, I'm Lucy, and in this episode I want to explore the identity of the early modern pirates of the Caribbean. Because of the global expanse of piracy, I will just have to use the phrase pirates of the Caribbean. Please bear with me. Firstly, it's worth asking what made a pirate a pirate. Today, thanks to film and fiction, we have a variety of vivid images of pirates, whether the sinister Long John Silver and Blind Pew, the dashing Errol Flynn, or the sublimely absurd figure of Captain Jack Sparrow. But in the heyday of Caribbean piracy, from the mid-16th to the early 18th centuries, what made an individual a pirate could be ambiguous, an ambiguity that was exploited in law courts and satirized on the stage by Shakespeare and others. Before I get further into questions of defining and recognizing piracy, though, I want to talk about what political and economic changes led to the rise of the pirates who became the stuff of legend, and those whom legends have neglected or erased. Archaeological and textual evidence indicates that piracy has been around for roughly as long as people have been transporting valuable stuff on ships. Piracy was a well-known and much-lamented danger on the Mediterranean and in the Indian Ocean from the time of the Roman Empire onwards, in varying degrees. But, beginning in the 16th century, the imperial expansion of England, France, and Spain brought unprecedented opportunities for piratical plunder and new political incentives for piracy as well. One of my favorite cheesy Hollywood titles in The Black Swan, uh, the one with Tyrone Power, not the one with Natalie Portman, describes this age of piracy as a time when villainy wore a sash and the only political creed in the world was love, gold, and adventure. But piratical creeds were in fact much more sophisticated than that, and defined in opposition to increasingly sophisticated and often exploitative laws of the land. Pirates' collective existence was defined in opposition to the societies and governments on land, and was correspondingly precarious. Legally, all pirates were outlaws. This meant not only the loss of their legal rights, but that any private individual had the right to capture or kill them. The skull and crossbones, the device under which so many pirates sailed, was a reference to this legal death. In many ceremonies of induction into pirate crews, a sort of liturgical parody might be enacted in which the new pirate, dead to life on land, was baptized and resurrected into life at sea. Under the Jolly Roger, equality among the crew members was enshrined in statutes. Although equal distribution of loot is sometimes used to highlight the decency of the good pirates of Hollywood swashbucklers, Errol Flynn versus Basil Rathbone in Captain Blood, for instance, such division was, in fact, more the rule than the exception, sometimes after a captain's share was taken. This made the incentive for trained sailors in regular navies to go over to piracy considerable. Both naval ships and pirates practiced impressment, forcing individuals into crews by violence, so many sailors may have had little reason for loyalty. Piratical statutes, also, are notable for their scaled payouts to members injured or maimed in combat, providing a much more substantial form of what we might recognize as disability insurance than the navies of Europe. Who were, then, these pirates of the Caribbean? 
Some of them may have been contrabandists tempted into buccaneering for greater gain, and sometimes obliquely for patriotic reasons, seeking to literally scupper the considerable profits of rival nations. Spanish-Caribbean courts increasingly during this period used more lenient punishments such as confiscation of goods, hard labor, and expulsion from the Indies for pirate crew members instead of the hanging that is so frequently threatened uh, in popular films. Since these same punishments were meted out to illegal immigrants and contraband smugglers, the distinction between these people and pirates could be blurred. An English contrabandist and minor buccaneer, for instance, was captured and sold into indentured servitude. When transported back to Europe, he filed suit against his captors and won. The colonial enterprises of England and Spain, and increasingly France, focused on plundering the resources of the New World to further the political projects of the old. Although almost entirely absent from the 19th century novels and Hollywood epics which have perpetuated the piratical mythos, legal and other sources indicate that perhaps 20 to 30 percent of the pirate crews which haunted the coasts of the Americas during this period were black. As sailors, officers, and captains, black pirates took advantage of the freedom of the seas, having much to lose on land. Very often, black pirates came from similar backgrounds to their European counterparts. They could be freemen, servants, or sailors. Escaped or freed slaves did account for many of the black pirates, but there were many others who came from very similar backgrounds to others, as exploited servants or reckless opportunists simply squeezed to the margins of political and economic systems. The Bahamas provided an especially rich recruitment ground for pirates, as many runaway slaves also took refuge there. The 17th and 18th centuries saw the growth of plantation farming in the Caribbean, and hence the growth of the slave trade from Africa to the Americas to supply labor which could not be supplied entirely by indentured servants. Correspondingly, this created a very explosive situation where slave ships certainly might be captured by pirates and uh, the liberated slaves then join the pirate crews, or uprisings against the largely not very efficient, sometimes not very efficient plantation owners uh, could lead to a group of discontented servants and slaves taking to piracy. And as far as the literary and legal evidence we have indicates, the solidarity of class, the sense of shared hardships and shared opportunities, far overrode any prejudice that might have existed on a racial basis between the pirates. Uh, There is a speech attributed to a French captain, for instance, in which he gives a stirring message to all of his crew on their equality under God and their equal opportunity on the seas. Uh, Captain Bellamy, less idealistic apparently, is (laughs) said to have spoken to a hesitating sailor and told him that he was a sneaking puppy, and so are all those who will submit to be governed by any laws which rich men have made for their own security. So there was a, a sense of shared aggrievement against systems of exploitation. Another anecdote uh, speaks of a mate and a sailor on the ship of Captain Steed Bonman, where a newly enlisted white sailor was spoken to harshly by one of the black officials and resisted this, but the captain backed his, his mate up and said that on the laws of the seas, the new recruit would work or indeed 
be punished and that the black officer who had reprimanded him had absolutely the right to do that because of his experience. These are a few anecdotes, but alas, little is known of most individuals on pirate crews. And this is true for 90% of all populations for most of history. From textual sources, it's very, very rare to be able to pull out individual histories. Archaeology is a different matter. Then we can discover some things about how people lived, ate, were sick, were healthy, um, but it's very, very difficult to find out individual stories. And women are especially hard to trace in pirate crews. The stories of women serving in pirate crews was something I wanted to explore more and discovered that there simply is very, very little scholarly literature on them. A few female pirates, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, for instance, have become famous as captains who were then eventually captured. But many more may have escaped the record, passing as men as Bonnie and Reed did. Several sensationalist anecdotes record female pirates being captured and then found out in pregnancy, which smacks to me of an awkward parable trying to imply comeuppance for concealing female bodies. There are still fewer anecdotes of successful sailors and soldiers, women who lived as men and whose biological gender was only posthumously discovered. This is largely a story that remains untold and possibly impossible to tell. The history of gender and piracy is certainly a complicated one, though. While 19th and 20th century images of masculinity co-opted pirates, pirates were often feminized by their opponents at the time. Pirates themselves simply could not afford prejudice. The Jolly Roger officially wiped out any individual's previous history, and embracing mutual support was often a question of survival. Uh, Tim Curry and the Muppets, oddly enough, provide a surprisingly excellent summary of professional piracy in the early modern period. If you like, you can pause to hear it now, or follow the link after the episode. It's a striking condemnation of Hollywood, I think, that one of the most diverse pirate crews is found in a Muppet movie, and things haven't changed much from the days of Errol Flynn to those of Johnny Depp. Where women participate in piracy, it's treated as transgressive with almost salacious relish, and this makes me sad as I really feel Hollywood missed out by not having Marina Hara be a hard-as-nails pirate captain. She is a pirate captain in Against All Flags, but she spends most of her time being jealous of a boring princess, which is very frustrating. If anyone wants to cheer me up by offering a feminist reading of Elizabeth Swan, I'd be delighted, but I've tried and failed. And the Pirates of the Caribbean as immortalized on film, include depressingly few pirates of color. There is the embarrassingly orientalist pirate empire in the third film, doing it wrong, and I think one black bosun in the first one, and I did not see many more than that. Certainly nowhere near the 20 to 30 percent who survive in the lists of crews of Henry Morgan, Captain Kidd, and half a dozen other less famous or notorious pirates. And in a way, I find this more frustrating in the 21st century than in the films of the 30s. The latter, however, have contributed in no small part to the whitewashing of the popular image of pirates, sadly. Captain Blood, in other respects, incorporates or transforms a number of documented piratical exploits. This 1935 film has our protagonist, Errol Flynn, sentenced to transportation and indentured servitude as a political dissident a fate which befell many following Monmouth's Rebellion of 1685. He then spearheads a slave rebellion, 
steals a pirate ship, and proceeds to swashbuckle his way across the high seas until the English authorities decide to co-opt his services and make him governor. Just imagine that with an accurate representation of multiracial pirate crews. It would be so much more exciting. For that, I would be willing to see someone step even into the inimitable Flynn's boots. Captain Kidd, infamously, failed in his assignments for the Crown, and was hanged for treason following a sensational and widely publicised trial, what can only be called a celebrity trial, really, at the Old Bailey. He was but one of pirates whose efforts were politically co-opted by the governments who became increasingly nervous about the large numbers of very successful and cohesive pirate crews. Henry Morgan, he of the eponymous rum, was much more successful. He became governor of Jamaica uh, in a shockingly respectable middle age, but he had proved his PR chops years earlier when he successfully sued for libel after an account of his exploits became a bestseller in Europe. He strenuously denied the charges of rape and pillage. Such opportunities for second careers were denied to black pirates, one of the fields where the equality under the black flag fell apart. This may partially explain the decision of Francisco Fernando of Jamaica to retire completely after a raid in which he took over 250,000 pieces of eight, which gives you some idea of the vast scale on which piratical plunder could be practiced. If captured, the fate of black pirates could be complicated. A frequent question in law in the increasingly frequent pirate trials of the early 18th century, was whether or not black pirates had been slaves forced into compliance with the pirate crews. If so, this could be used as loophole, they could be found not guilty of piracy, although this led out of the frying pan into the fire, in a sense, as they could then be enslaved again. And courts decided variously whether captured black pirates ought to be punished with hanging for the crime of piracy, or with being sold into slavery. So they had, arguably, far more to lose than their European counterparts. While on the sea, they were prosperous, famous, or infamous, even as other pirates whose names have survived, Henry Morgan, etc. Uh, Black Caesar, for instance, was a captain who is said to have buried a vast treasure off the Florida coast, and who, for a time, during the heyday of piracy, had a reputation exceeding that of Blackbeard. Uh, a number of captains serving with Morgan, for instance, are known to have been of African or Caribbean descent. Juan Andres, moreover, may be, I think, the original dread pirate Roberts of Princess Bride fame. He was believed dead for over two years after a career of much bloodshed and still more gold. Um, but after two years of silence, he, from a mysterious retirement in Curaçao, began his exploits again. The collective career of pirates, however, was limited by the way in which it was practiced. Although not all pirates were as infamously violent as François Lollonnet, a French captain who was said to eat his victims' hearts, pirates were absolutely unhesitating in their plundering of coastal cities. And they very systematically rejected structure. Scholars disagree as to whether this was simply a force of rejection, of pushing away from a society in which pirates had been marginalized and exploited, or whether it was something a little more idealistic, a very conscious creation of an alternate 
social order, a radical experiment, a political experiment of sorts. But the fact that whatever the motivations for the structure of pirate crews, they remained very decentralized and largely unwilling to compromise made them extremely vulnerable in legal terms. Um, you can't have local allies if you're constantly plundering cities. So even though they were far from the center of empire, um, they, they made very few uh, friendly contacts along the coasts which they routinely plundered. And by the mid-18th century, with the trial of Captain Kidd and others, the legal systems of the empires which pirates had been so successfully plundering uh, eventually succeeded in crushing, more or less, these radical buccaneers. Terrors of the sea, popular heroes, both. And we see this strange dual image surviving from Robert Louis Stevenson onwards. One story that remains only partially told is the ways in which this episode in history, this period of over 200 years, in which pirates gained celebrity, notoriety, and huge, huge, huge amounts of wealth, is the way in which these piratical statutes overcame, overturned the laws which increasingly led to racially divided exploitation in Europe and European colonies. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week! <laughs>